Welcome back to Library Land Loves. I'm Michelle Arbuckle. And for the second episode in a row, we are bringing you highlights from the recent OLA Superconference. Today's episode was the Thursday morning keynote recorded on Thursday, February 3rd, 2022, and features the amazing crew from NPR's Pop Culture Happy Hour. If you aren't a subscriber to that podcast, I highly recommend checking it out. Linda, Aisha, Stephen and Glenn regularly bring their thoughts and opinions about TV shows, movies, music, books and podcasts. If it's in the culture, you can bet they've got an episode about it. We invited the PCHH team to the conference this year because Libraryland loves pop culture. And in many ways, pop culture and talking about pop culture has given us a welcome distraction over the past few years. So I hope you enjoy this conversation with Pop Culture Happy Hour. Good morning, Libraryland, and welcome to this morning, our Thursday morning keynote on day three of the conference. We are very excited this morning to, I think, have a very uplifting conversation. Um, okay, maybe there'll be some downers, but we're going <laughs> to overall keep it pretty uplifting, um, talking about pop culture. And I'm thrilled to have with us today, um, as Andrea introduced, Linda Holmes, Stephen Thompson, and Glenn Weldon from Pop Culture's Happy Hour. Um, unfortunately, Aisha Harris is unable to join us this morning because she is the one place where Zoom doesn't reach an airplane. I was going to make a joke about rural Ontario there, but I chose <laughs> not to. Um, good morning, Linda, Stephen, and Glenn. It's so lovely to have you here. Good morning. Thanks for having us. We're, we're delayed so to, be great to be here. And I also just want to acknowledge that, uh, you know, we also have wonderful producers on our show who also aren't here. So I apologize in advance for what uh, we cannot answer. <laughs> that would be answered by uh, our brilliant uh, producers, Jessica Reedy and Mike Katzif and Candace Lim. So um, just so you know, in advance, there's a lot that we don't know. Yeah, we will do our best to uh, produce and edit ourselves in real time. Yeah, I was going to say, what you're going to think while you hear us talk is like, someone cuts these people way down on the show. Yeah. Like, so many ums, ahs, and lip smacks. Yeah. This is PCHA after dark. Who keeps these people in line? I was going to take the kicky little music, but I thought that Mike Katzif might get mad at me. So I, oh. I decided to just leave the music to his his duties. Yeah, I got to say, like, it's a it's a funny story. But when we first started this show ages and ages ago in 2010, um, you know, Mike left for a while after this, but was the producer that worked with us at the very, 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 very dawn of time of this show. And the way that music came about is, you know, we were putting the show together. We said, Mike, you have a band. Pick something. <laughs> He did, and we didn't even hear it until we never it heard it show. until the show was published. And now yeah. I can't imagine the the show without it. So the the yeah. kicky music we came by that honestly, actually. <laughs> Excellent. Well, thank you. I'm glad everyone's got themselves oriented now. We all know your voices, so now everyone's kind of we're easing into seeing your faces and yes, this is what we look like. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> Such as it is. Thank you for joining. Um, I did not introduce myself, but I am Michelle Arbuckle from OLA and the conference director. I'm also the host of OLA's podcast, Library Land Loves, where we talk about all of the things Library Land Loves, which is a lot of things, including pop culture. Most importantly, I might say, pop culture. So um, we're happy to have this conversation with you. The first question I would like to ask, I'm actually, I'm not going to say stealing. I'm going to say I'm citing my sources as a true librarian. One of my favorite podcasts is Las Culturistas oh, that's great. by Love Bowen it. Yang and Matt Rogers. And the question they ask all of their guests, which I will ask you, is um, 
when did you say or what culture made you say culture was for you and the way i interpret this question and i'm actually very curious for those attending the session today if you want to put in the discussion board the culture that you thought um that first piqued your interest or that you first identified with that made you think hey there's culture in this world that's actually made for someone like me so i'm going to start alphabetically by first name because that is the stereotype that i will stick to um so we'll be starting with glenn cool um if you would ask me this question before 2016 i would have said the 1966 batman television show with adam west and burt ward but I wrote a book about that and I've talked a lot about that and there's not a lot of fresh fodder there, but something that goes back even further is I would say uh, the Sunday paper, particularly the TV weekly supplement, which was the supplement that tells you what's going to be on TV that week. So my family would go to church every week and we'd walk down the hallway and they'd peel off into the chapel and I'd peel off into the Sunday school classroom. But at about age eight, I'd wait for them to peel off into the chapel <laughs> and then I'd head back to the car to read the paper. Uh, and I would sit there and memorize what was going to be on every channel. And in my defense, there were just the seven, but still I would memorize everything. Uh, and at the front of the TV week was a listing of every movie that was going to be on TV that week. Um, and it would be just very, very brief. It would be listing by channel and time It would name the leads. You'd have a one or two sentence, very anodyne blurb, and then a four-star rating. And, uh, I remember. If the movie was pretty schlocky, whomever was writing these blurbs uh, had a pretty sardonic sense of humor. The one I remember, because I read it out to my parents and I just kind of internalized it, was for the the brain, the brain from planet Aurus. And the, the blurb was, um, brain creatures from outer space mentally control a scientist's fiance's dog, period. Oh, that old plot, period. <laughs> And I was like, oh, somebody in TV Week's pretty spicy. I like this. So that is meta as hell, but that's my answer. Interesting. I love that. Can I ask a follow-up? Glenn, were you a TV Guide fall preview issue guy? Like that big, fat TV Guide fall preview? No, oh. we, just, we stuck to the bulletin, the Philadelphia bulletin. Linda. All right, all uh, right, yeah. all right. I mean, before spreadsheets were a thing in my life, I remember making a chart based on yep. that preview yep, yep, when yep. I had to watch what. And mm -hmm. yeah, that was a, that was a great time. Thank you for that, Glenn. For those in the Toronto area or Southern Ontario, Mark Daly's voice on City TV will come to mind. He would always do previews for shows and add some witty little thing that you were like, this guy gets it. This <laughs> is my guy. Exactly. <laughs> Thank you, Glenn. Um, Linda. Um, the 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 earliest indication of sort of the 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 desire to analyze pop culture in the way that I do now uh, was probably um, when I was in college. I wrote a paper about um, portrayals of women in movie musicals because I was very heavily into movie musicals, and so you know I wrote about um, you know joyful moments and love stories, but I also wrote about like. Why are there a bunch of movie musicals with scenes of women dancing in their underwear? Like in there's one in Greece, there's one in Seven Brides for Seven Brothers, there's one in Oklahoma, um, stuff like that. And I think if you look back at that paper, I'm like, no, eh, that that that's you know, she's coming, she's coming around. That girl. Story checks out. Yeah. <laughs> and Stephen. Yeah, for me, I, I mean, I really talk about coming by something honestly. I was raised by obsessed comic book 
collectors uh, and people who were professional fans of comic books. My parents edited a magazine about comic books uh, growing up. And so my parents were so steeped and so obsessed, um, so steeped in and obsessed with the things that they loved that it made perfect sense for me to kind of drift into a world where I was kind of a professional enthusiast in my own right. And so any culture that I engaged with as a kid, my default was to obsess over it and to really take it seriously. And so I love, I obsessed uh, over Jack Benny radio shows and uh, Warner Brothers cartoons and Hot Wheels cars and wacky packages. And eventually it was top 40 radio. And I would listen to Casey Kasem's American Top 40 and then Rick D's Weekly Top 40 back to back every Sunday. And I would write down in spiral bound notebooks, I would like transcribe uh, the, the top 40 every Sunday and, and kind of obsess over it and like mark off the chart movements and stuff like that. And so I think the, the ability to engage with and obsess over is almost from birth because that's, that is who made me. Both of my parents are like that through and through. Uh, my mother still is to, to, to this day. Um, when I was probably 14 years old, my parents uh, nurtured my obsession with pop music by buying me a subscription to Billboard magazine, uh, which is a very expensive subscription. That was a very generous gift on their part. And I, I remember one of my one of my big teenage memories. I remember um, riding my bicycle while reading Billboard magazine and riding into the back of a parked car. Um, <laughs> so you're texting and driving for it is my it is my texting teenagers. and driving, but I was but I was scanning the Hot 100 at the time. Yeah. I feel we should acknowledge briefly, by the way, that Stephen really is sitting in the bottom of a closet. In case you're wondering why it looks like he's sitting in the bottom of a closet. No, no, you... this is a, this is a Zoom background. <laughs> <laughs> coveted, <Sorry>. coveted Zoom background. <laughs> I mean, it's really interesting, you know, Stephen, talking about you know, your parents coming from this place of critiquing culture. You know, I grew up knowing that the time I was going to have most fun was sitting next to my dad while he watched Hee Haw. Mm -hmm. And he was laughing, he was singing, but never do I remember them turning off a show, whether it's Hee Haw or Solid Gold or whatever, and going, you know, I really wish they had done this instead. Like there was never a critique element to that experience. Whereas now, you know, thinking about I'm watching Drag Race with my daughter and afterwards we're always like, why didn't they do this? Or why did they do that in the lip sync, you know? And right. so it's just, it's interesting to think about those behaviors that we encourage from a young age and what people are experiencing. Did Linda and Glenn, did you also have an experience growing up where you were encouraged to come up with your opinions on things like that? Um, short answer, no. <laughs> um, I, but I just want to say, uh, Stephen's parents uh, created a magazine that was really the first kind of journalistic, put, putting journalistic acumen into fandom, uh, comic book fandom. So uh, the comic book fandom that exists today, I just want to say, is their fault. Everything, every every good and bad thing is is because of Maggie and Don Simpson. I will uh, say, but, Simpson? Yeah. You said Don Simpson, who's somebody else. Yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah my, my parents have a very mixed legacy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I would say like at my house, you know, one of the things my parents did like that we watched on TV from when I was very young was uh, Siskel and Ebert. So mm -hmm. um, I think those were my first convert. I think that's true for tons and tons of people. Um, that, you know, my early exposure to talking about criticism and thinking about criticism was, was Siskel and Ebert. And later those, those big fat Roger Ebert 
like review kind of dictionaries on oh, the, the Leonard the Leonard Maltons movie sure. guides. The Leonard Maltons ones are huge, but the the Roger Ebert ones, which have kind of the longer essays and stuff, I I owned a bunch of different editions of of that book, and so that's that's a that was also a really early important influence uh, mm -hmm. in terms of actual criticism. Yeah, we did watch Cisco and Ebert. I'm just remembering now, and my dad hated it. He would mm. anger watch it because that's their job. Uh, oh really talking about movies oh. Like, oh see for us it was the critiquing yeah. my parents loved ebert and hated siskel <laughs> so. this is fascinating <laughs> i remember being young and this i'm going to call this early blogging um i would get a book out from grimsby public library apologies to grimsby if you're if you're here um and when i would take a book out i would use the the back page to write a review in pencil um and hoped and i would go back every week and look and see if someone else would have added their review. oh that's oh, very good but no like one that. ever you're did i think you're still i'm pretty sure you're still fired but it's a very, <laughs> very good i'm gonna receive an invoice from grimsby public library yes, anyway right. there, there's somebody out there right now going it was you exactly you were the an pencil vandal an invoice for all the erasers they had to buy yeah um, I am curious if you are ever, ever able to turn off your critic. So you do this regularly, daily, weekly, where you're, you're looking at culture, you're consuming culture, and then you have to come up with an opinion for the table. Um, I would imagine that sometimes people are encouraged to maybe not all have the same opinion. So someone has to take an opposite stance, but are, are there types of culture where, you know, where you say, you know what, I'm just, I'm listening to this Taylor Swift album and I'm never going to have an opinion. I'm just going to love it. That's a far example, but are there any types of culture where you can do that or where you want to do that? You know, the thing that I always say about this problem is that the best thing about my job is that uh, even when I am working, I am 25% doing what I enjoy. Um, and the worst thing about the job is that even when I am doing what I enjoy, I am 25% working. Um, and so my solution to that is that there are definitely times if I really do want to turn my brain off and I will reveal at this point that I'm currently on a, I'm currently actually on leave from this job um, for a few weeks. And I really did need to stop thinking in job mode. So what I've been doing while I clean my house and do other things is watching endless old seasons of Say Yes to the Dress on TLC. <laughs> and it's partly because it has no value in my job at all. Now watch me come back to work and be like, Say yes to the dress is important exactly. because, but I, it, 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 it is sometimes things will. like, it is, <laughs> students like, I see this feminist essay coming from, that, look, there's, um, it is sometimes those things that have no, no like obvious value to the job. Those are the things that I really do relax with old, you know, stuff I've already seen, stuff I know nobody's going to want to read about, stuff I've already written about a lot sometimes if i'm rewatching so yeah it, it does take some some significant effort to to get myself out of you know that kind of bus mentality kind of thing even what about you um yeah for for me i mean my my family complains all the time if we go to if we go to the movies back in the olden times when we would all go to the theater together and we'd start walking to the car and i would start peppering them with questions kind of 
processing what I had just seen and it drives them nuts. Um, the like, let's have a discussion about what we've just seen is not, is not my family's favorite at all, but that is the part of my brain that is always working when I'm consuming entertainment. I have the exact same issue that, that Linda does in terms of the 25%, 75% split at, at all times. Uh, and my trick is my trick for getting around it is actually similar to Linda's, which is uh, rewatching, rewatching things that I already know I love. Uh, has has really taken on importance in my kind of self care rituals. I will rewatch, you know, old seasons of you know, you know, like certainly any like heartwarming sitcom, your Good Place and Parks and Rec and Schitt's Creek and and Futurama, all all the you know all my old favorites that I love to rewatch. I'm rewatching them knowing that I'm not going to be talking about them, and I, and I think that's a that's a good way around it. Uh, weirdly, with music, I very often, I really kind of mostly only like listening to new music. I don't very often go back and and revisit old old favorites as much as I as much as I probably should. So that's an area of my life where really I kind of prefer always discovering new things that that just gives me great joy. But with with other forms of entertainment, rewatching is the key. I've I sit down and rewatch Arrival probably once a month. <laughs> so that's so interesting. That is fascinating. I, I get so stressed out by new music. I mean, yeah. it takes, I feel like I just, I have to orient myself to it. And it's like a pair of pants I got to work in, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I feel, that. yeah, that's interesting. If I have a familiarity with how something is constructed, or at least I think I do, like if it's a movie, play, book, whatever. Um, and I also have what I think to be an ability to articulate what I think about it, then the critic is sitting there front and center always reaching for the words to describe why this works, why this doesn't work. And if I'm not doing it for the for the show or to write about it, then I'm turning to my hapless husband on the couch and saying, see now, uh, that was a reference to, and he hates it, of course he hates it, just like uh, Stephen's family. But because it's because criticism isn't about having an opinion or engaging with the work, everybody has an opinion, everybody engages with the work. Criticism is about being able to articulate it. So it's about engaging with others about the work, right? So when it gets to be too much, uh, I will go see, well, back before the plague, I would go see uh, like Alvin Ailey or the National Orchestra or the Hirschen Museum here in DC because I, ha I can have strong opinions about that stuff, but I do not have the vocabulary to <laughs> articulate anything. I can form opinions that are half-formed opinions. I do not know how they are put together. So I'm not sitting there just constantly trying to describe, to articulate, because again, the idea is to express that opinion that you have in a way that helps, <laughs> right? That that in some way contextualizes or delineates or argues for or argues against. And so I just surrender to media types of art that I, I just don't have the vocabulary to express. Mm -hmm. How do you get that vocabulary? Like, is it just exposure? Is it, because I I mean, I know, Glenn, in the research that I've done on all of you, uh, I did my proper librarian due diligence here and did a deep dive in each of your backgrounds. So I know where the bodies are buried, let's <laughs> oh, say. <no. laughs> um, but Glenn, your background is in your you've studied marine biology. And yeah. so I mean, yeah, there's not a real connection with the culture you're well, except with Aquaman. Yeah, <laughs> I am living proof that studying something isn't how you become uh, <laughs> articulate or well versed in it. I can right now go to an aquarium in a, in a restaurant and go, oh, that's a fish of some kind. That's pretty much where 
where it, like I, I just I, I just don't have it. I mean, I think if I wanted to, I could take classes in music appreciation and art appreciation and and get something like that. But I don't want to. <laughs> I want to be able to surrender to stuff and have a pre-verbal reaction to things. Mm -hmm. um, so and that's why I admire the hell out of Stephen being able to write about music because I could I don't know a riff from a lick. Don't know. Couldn't tell you. <laughs> couldn't tell you. Don't know what it is. And I don't want to know. <laughs> <laughs> but what Stephen and the people at NPR Music can do is express it without using jargon, and that's right. that's what's important. I mean, I have a music degree. My undergraduate oh. is music, but I will say, Stephen, you taught me what a bridge is and when a bridge is good. <laughs> so thank you for that. Hey, my point. My um, I also just I really I found this one interview with you, Glenn, and I just have to read this one quote because it made I had a pre-verbal reaction to this quote. It was hilarious okay. to me. You were talking about when you were studying marine biology and how the smell of rotting fish was a was a prevalent uh, smell, and you say. Every time I would take an elective course in the fine arts building, it's like I would walk in and smell the chalk, the books and leather, and it'd be like peacocks walking around down the hallways and people playing harps. It yeah. felt it just felt like this is where I belong, which I thought was beautiful. Yeah, it was like walking from the set of Jaws into the set of, I don't know, the paper chase or something like that. Just some kind of uh, richly bound leather, dark books, people talking about art and music and books. Uh, I, I knew why I was making a huge mistake, but uh, <laughs> when I stuck with it for no discernible reason. That's great. Um, all right, the next question I want to ask you about is I've been thinking a lot this past how well, what is time two years I guess <laughs> about um, the algorithm and how information or you know culture is pushed to me specifically on streaming platforms and that kind of thing and just the the bubble that I live in the network that I'm in the type of culture that is. Um, that is served up to me and i will say you know it's been a couple of years since i think you all have made a real concerted effort to change up the voices at your table and to specifically bring in non-white voices to give a broader perspective to the audience on culture that's out there which i think is fantastic thank you for that so i'm curious um from your own perspectives how are you exposing yourself to new culture and breaking the algorithm how are you making sure that you're not just consuming what's served up to you well, I, I want to say, first of all, that the, the best reason to add a lot of new voices to the show, I mean, there's so, sort of like, yes, we absolutely wanted to expand the perspectives uh, on the show, but also like the show is just much better um, mm -hmm. with more people, different people, more people who are into different things. You know, um, it, it's definitely very conspicuous that, as you said, we have added a lot of non-white voices. You can see that we are a pretty pale group. Um, however, you know, you also from expanding that table, you get like people who are super into horror movies and people who are super into, you know, rom-coms versus people who are super into, you know, um, telenovelas or whatever. So, so it's been wonderful in a bunch of different ways. For me personally, I think the best thing that I've done in that regard is actually, um, it's one of the few things that I still like about Twitter is I follow a ton, a ton of cultural critics and writers and thinkers on Twitter and through them discover things. Because the problem with the algorithm, of course, is that curation has never been less necessary or more crucial, if I can say it that way. So you don't need anybody to curate for you. You can certainly leave it up to Netflix or whatever, or Amazon or whatever. And 
they'll give you more of what you already like. And there's some value in that. And I think people kind of, you know, you can decide like, hey, I don't need Roger Ebert. I don't need critics. I don't need anything. But to some degree, you wind up either going with algorithm or you go with crowd you know, sourcing, like I'm going to go see things that are rated on IMDb with eight stars. The problem being at this point, anything that can be gamed will be gamed by right. sometimes malevolent bad faith actors. Mm -hmm. So good curation for me is incredibly essential, even though I could now live without it more easily, if that makes sense. So I really rely on those super smart critics and people like that, that I follow on Twitter. And the you know, one of the things that's wonderful about the voices that we've added to the show is that in many cases, they are people that I have already read for years and, and relied on to expose me to new things. And when we are able to include them in our show, to me, that's, that's just like, I, I'm incredibly proud of that, but I'm also just incredibly kind of honored by that. Like, I, I think that's really fun and great. And it means a lot to me to be able to take our audience and help introduce them to in some cases people they already know right but they didn't know we knew you know mm -hmm. I mean? and in some cases to people that they might not know so mm -hmm. yeah it's just an inviolate rule that anytime anything grows less monolithic it grows less monotonous um, yeah. multiple voices are better more perspectives more takes more um insights more in the case of you know fictional movies more stories you know a wider context better pressure newer stories stories that haven't been told to death and in the terms of uh, in terms of criticism when those voices don't agree that is empirically better <laughs> when we all move in lock lockstep um then you get to choose you get to curate for yourself you get to find critics that you vibe with whether or not they share your particular you know circumstances if they share your sensibilities if they share your values if they say something that you vibe with or that you feel i find this increasingly if i feel kind of discomfited or implicated in what they're saying then there's uh then there's something real to kind of dig in there yeah, yeah i don't have a ton to add beyond what linda and glenn said i, I think the the point of cu curating your own feeds it is really really possible to game your own algorithm to push yourself beyond your comfort zone and we've had such an easy cheat code to do that because the show keeps adding these amazing voices and these really really smart people some of whom i was already fans of some of whom i wasn't familiar with but i'm now fans of and you just it's just the most important thing you can do in this job is listen mm -hmm. and so it it's 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 really easy to get into bubbles and i think we all we all live in bubbles no matter how hard we try but it's also i think easier than we think to expand them because social media exists naturally as as a pool of people who are not necessarily already our friends and so i would put together a a, a twitter list maybe we should do this ourselves but like some sort of twitter list of like everybody who has ever been on our show if you want to just like follow a list of everybody who's ever been on our show you'll get a great cross-section of recommendations for things that are are beyond each of our individual comfort zones yeah and this is also another thing where i would briefly mention that the work of our producers yes one of the reasons why you know th this is a thing where all the incentives to add additional voices to the show pull in the same direction right it's good for all the reasons it's good for audience growth it's good for what we believe ethically about the what we want the show to be it's good for aligning the show with what npr wants to be it's good for improving just the quality of the conversation it's good for expanding what we can cover the only thing you have to make sure of is that you have the production support 
to do the actual work of reaching out to people booking is you know so can be really a grind and particularly now you know you got to test everybody's audio our producers do that every single week they do audio tests with people so jessica and mike and candace in a lot of ways are doing the admin you know in addition to being critical to actually finding those voices they also do the admin work of kind of just the work work part of of getting all those people involved in the show and communicating with them and writing the documents that help them kind of know what our processes are so it's also you know productions the expanded production support that we've gotten from npr has been absolutely critical to this stage of the show's development what i really want is like for them to do a podcast no 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 shade <laughs> i would have to it. not yeah. listen to it in order oh, yeah, to prevent will. myself from having a 16 different complexes but they absolutely <laughs> yeah. should do a panel like this for some yeah, I, back in the day my desk used to be near jessica's enough so that i would hear her editing uh the show mm -hmm. and when she had and she you know she does it by herself but if she was if there was an intern or something and she was walking them through i would hear things like okay this story goes nowhere cut it uh <laughs> lens joke didn't land cut it like like that's that was like it's it's also worth noting that they do the same uh, they do the same prep that we do even though they don't have the the you know exciting public facing process of of actually yeah. like getting to talk about it so like if i'm watching 10 hours of a tv show to prepare for a discussion on pop culture happy hour i will you know i'll then like be able to compare notes with mike or candace or, or or jessica or you know whoever's producing that episode they've done that same prep yeah. mm -hmm. and so so you talk about the, the the old saying about you know the backwards and high heels like they're doing they're doing the same show we are yeah. backwards and high heels they're also doing all that all that admin work and all that prep work and you know all that editing on top of it yeah that's amazing i remember early in my library career um an older librarian in a public library telling me that she she had to read Entertainment Weekly every week so that she knew what the kids were talking about when they came in. <laughs> and so I know, you know, in every session, a librarian loves to get a, a recommendation, a book list. Is there, give us a, a secret silver bullet, something, a resource where people should be looking so that they're staying on top of culture. Is there a thing, a place they can go? We are exactly the right people to ask. Um, <laughs> I, 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 I swear to you, the first thing that came into my mind was that I go to Candace for this. Our producer, mm -hmm. Candace, is is much more sort of like she's much younger than we are, and she's much like she's much more tuned into a different to whole different strands of culture than I am. Um, but I think for me, like I do gain a lot from just kicking around TikTok and YouTube. Like, even though a lot of it is garbage, like you have to make your way through a lot of garbage. It's true that, for example, coming to understand how kind of influencer culture is working right now um, is not always pleasant or fun, but I do think it's really important. So I think sometimes you just have to make time to, to kick around a little bit. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know that I, I mean, I think there are definitely podcasts, you know, like you said, I think if you're listening to Las Culturistas and you're listening to, you know, Who Weekly, Who Weekly, things that are very cool that I'm not thinking of right now because my mind goes blank, but 
but you know, I think podcasts are good for that, but, mm-hmm. um, but yeah, it definitely takes work. And like Stephen was saying, like you sort of just have to set yourself up with a, a big list of sources to kind of keep on top of. I think anytime, because anytime you try to get that all from one thing, like, like entertainment weekly, you're adopting the limitations of, of whatever the framework of that thing is. So yeah. it's better to sort of take it yourself, get a whole bunch of different streams running into your own like curated feed. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And more than once, we have kind of kept an eye on a show or a movie, waiting for it to kind of make, to bubble up on social mm-hmm. media. And that's the kind of criteria, not the criteria, but it is a criteria we use to determine whether they're gonna devote resources, you know, a full show to it, or we're gonna let it be somebody's making us happy. Uh, the conversation, you have to kind of keep your foot in the conversation. And I do follow TikTok, but I do it through that mediated Instagram way I do, which is TikTok for olds, you know, anything that kind <laughs> yeah. of filters down from TikTok <laughs> onto the Instagram reels, that's that's what I, that's how I catch it. And I have, I have the true old person relationship with TikTok, which is it's too loud and chaotic. <laughs> it just stresses me out. See, I like TikTok. I, I, I think y'all are, this is like the, one of the few things where I'm ever cooler than anyone. Like I, I like TikTok. I but you're TikTok. cooler than me. That's I mean, what is fascinating is if we were all sitting next to each other and we all opened it right now, what the first video would be, would be so glaringly different that you never right. know what someone's experiencing. Well, yeah. It would probably other- be something from Encanto, actually, matter of fact. That's kind of oh my God, Glenn. Right now. Uh, and <laughs> you and I have, you and I have much to discuss. Yes. Uh, <laughs> Unite. I mean, I mean, I do think I do think what Linda was saying about about, you know, conversations with Candace Lim, who's you are one of our younger producers. I mean, being able to surround yourself with smart young people who have lots of ideas and being being like really willing to listen and engage with it and and understand that, like, you know, if you're lucky enough to be surrounded by really smart people listening really is the listening really is the key you know I listen to my to my kids who are about to turn 18 and 21 I listen to our young producers NPR music has this incredible assortment of very 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 bright young producers um you know and I spend a ton of time on slack sometimes just lurking and listening and and trying things based on their recommendations and obviously that's not always easily duplicated except through things like following folks on folks on Twitter Right. So well, Thompson is arguing for uh, tapping the vital life essence of the young. <laughs> well, <laughs> yes, but yes, but I will say, I think it is, I think it is traditionally true at large institutions. And I know this is, is true at NPR, that it's incredibly important, no matter how established you are, and no matter how much you respect the work that you're already doing, to make sure that your relationships with your younger producers and folks like that are two-way relationships where you're exactly. not just training them to be like you or training them to work how you work or training them in in the ways of the organization or the company or whatever you're also listening to what they say and you're also like taking in what they are telling you that you might not know and so i think we we hope i hope for the show to be kind of for our show to be kind of a microcosm of that where you know the people whether they're panelists or producers or whoever it's not just a matter of like we will train you in the ways of how we do this podcast. Oh my God. It's like, what can you teach us about how to do it? So, you know. Yeah. 
Thank you. I'm going to take a couple questions from the audience before we go into our last segment, which I'm ripping right from your show. We will be talking about what is making you happy this week. Um, but first, let's. Uh, there's a question here from Lauren Bull from Upper Grand District School Board. Um, this kind of ties in with a conversation we were having about the type of culture you were consuming during the pandemic and taking care of yourself and, and what it means to take care of yourself. She's asking, though, how can people in school libraries encourage young people to engage with pop culture while empowering them to handle the harmful harmful things that they encounter? So I'm curious, you know, we've all needed different things from culture these past couple of years. Yeah. You have to expose yourself to so many things though. So how are you engaging with it in a way where you're still able to care for yourself? Yeah, I mean, I will step up as the person who has not watched Station Eleven, which I've been told is really wonderful. It is um, because it is a because it is a, a an epidemic slash pandemic story. Um, I just I just can't. I and I know I can't. And no matter how much people tell me like no, but really it's and I no I I, I know I can't. So I think to some degree it's a matter of of. Um, and I say this as somebody who doesn't have kids, so please forgive me if I I sound dumb, but. Um, I think it's a matter of giving kids the skills and the confidence to say like there are some things that you may not want to read um i mean this is the upside of you know people talk so much about the concept of content warnings and the the ups and downs of that all of which i get but the upside of that is giving people the opportunity to say hey this might not be for me right now i might not want to hear this story right now and i think it's a matter of giving them the confidence to to work through yes i can taken things that are hard and also making sure that they are surrounded by people they can talk to about those things. Mm -hmm. I remember after I saw <clears throat> 12 Years a Slave having several conversations with people where it was just like you came out of the movie theater and people just wanted to talk to each other about, you know, not just whether they liked it, but sort of processing out loud. Um, and those things are really important. I don't know, Stephen, you have kids. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, I think that that ability to process is is really, really important. I mean, my kids, I was really raised by parents who wanted me to be exposed to more or less whatever culture I wanted to be exposed to and, and showed me R rated movies when I was pretty young, but, but also wanted to talk to me about it, um, you know, in part to see how I was processing them, but in part because the these were generally works of art that they loved and wanted to share with me. My parents used to sit me down to watch movies with me for my education, which is a great way to suck the fun out of anything. <laughs> um, and so I don't necessarily, I don't necessarily advocate that. Um, but you know, very often, you know, the 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 kids around you will will tell you you know, we'll tell you what they're interested in. And my kids, especially my daughter, uh, who's a senior in high school now, uh, my daughter has really gravitated toward a lot of horror, a lot of kind of porny anime, I would say, um, <laughs> a lot of like weird web comics. Um, and, you know, I've certainly had concern as a parent, like, man, you know, my kid is consuming some, some pretty horrifying stuff, but she she also processes it. And one of the ways that people process their fears is through horror. And and you know, so just like having a lot of conversations with her, listening to her as she as she as she kind of you know talks out what she likes and doesn't like and what scares her and doesn't scare her. Um that's you watch a, horror with her. I do yeah. watch horror with her. So I don't she watch knows every... she can talk to you about that stuff because you watch that stuff with her. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And some of that is also just the importance of parents just taking an 
interest in what their kids like so that they're so that their kids feel heard and seen and i'm not necessarily a big horror movie guy but i will sit and watch whatever godforsaken you know we watched uh, hereditary together <laughs> you know through you know i i, I, I have to say Rot. for me for me i thought the cinematography was affected by the fact that i could only see it through the slivers <laughs> between my fingers um but it's so it's so interesting you know to talk about like what is and isn't pandemic entertainment and what is and isn't triggering or upsetting uh you know my partner uh, katie is is somebody who wants content warnings about everything she's about to see and reads Wikipedia pages, you know, to find out what scary things, reads a lot of parents guides because she just doesn't want to see people get murdered on screen or doesn't want to see violence on screen. It's just, it really bugs her, but she devoured Station Eleven, loved the book, loved the TV show, talked about the TV show on Pop Culture Happy Hour in this very uh, room that I'm, that I'm, that I'm sitting in. Um, and so like each person, just each person has things that upset them that they need to steer clear of and and part of the process of supporting people on on their cultural journeys is respecting and understanding what uh what they want to steer clear of yeah I, the only thing i'd add is that the mode of engaging with this stuff has changed we my generation was passive consumers and then it was our job to take what was handed to us or, or roll down from the mountaintop and just discuss it with each other. Now, I think uh, with social media, with things like, I mean, you can have a conversation with the content uh, and things like fan fiction and headcanon and cosplay, they make someone a more active participant. And um, it's all, it, this is why I think in comics anyway, we're seeing lots of multiverses, right? It's all canon, it's all true, it all happened quantum takes and I, I think that's what's going on here and i think that helps well and as much as you know we've talked about the decline of the monoculture and how like when glenn looked at the tv guide when he was a kid it had seven channels and now of course it has all this stuff for my kids it is so much more shrapnelized than we even think it is yeah. the number of people uh my kids ages who are not only writing fan fiction but creating like their own ocs their own original characters and then like my daughter's an artist and so she's she's being paid by people on the internet to draw people's original characters in context that they want them drawn in and like you just see that the, the the rabbit hole of people creating and bending art to their will is so far beyond even what I thought I knew about as somebody who consumes a lot of culture. Mm -hmm. There's a question here which kind of ties into Glenn's Glenn bringing up, you know, was it the mon lack of the monoculture? Is that the that phrase? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and you know the topic of fandom and how fans interact with each other and having respectful discourse and you know something that we talk a lot about in Libraryland is um, is creating good digital citizens so building our youth to know how to engage with each other online and how to have uh, respectful discourse and respond to each other and of course culture in particular you know the superhero world is not necessarily the greatest for that but um how would you speak to that effort of how we can talk to them about how to do that better um i think the the toxicity creeps in when people get a sense of ownership uh when when they when fandom closes up as opposed to engages when, when fandom isn't fueled by enthusiasm and by true the need to share that's that's when everything starts to sour and curl um you know i 
And something else is happening here where people are engaging with the characters as characters and not as products of writer's rooms and story demands and things like that. They are they're developing these passionate relationships with these fictional beings. And that, that's inevitable and that's part of it. And I would remember when I would read television at Petty Boards back in the day and people would get angry at Spike and I would wonder why they're angry at Spike and not at Joss Whedon and Marnie Nixon <laughs> and all these people. Uh, but then I realized they're having a hell of a lot more fun than I am. Yeah, right. the, the only thing that I would add to what I think Glenn is, is very smart on this stuff. The only thing I would add is that I think as you teach kids about this, you just have to be very conscious of keeping in mind that when you take the attitude of like, well, you know, open is always better than not open. Everybody should just kind of get out there and talk and, you know, you just have to sort of, you know, get through it and learn from what you, the costs of that, the costs of that approach are, and the kind of everyone should comment and talk and nothing should be, you know, controlled. The costs of that are never borne equally by everyone. The costs of that kind of thing, and this is my experience of the internet, certainly the costs of that are born disproportionately by people of color, disproportionately by women, disproportionately by LGBT people. So you just have to make sure that whatever policy you're putting in place, that you're keeping in mind that the burdens of the toxicity of the internet are born very unequally by different people. So it's just important, I think, to make that part of your part of your thinking. Yeah I, yeah, I couldn't agree more with, with what Linda and, and Glenn have said. I mean, I think toxic fan communities have been around a, a lot longer than people maybe think. I mean, my, because my parents were like very early era comic book fans, like my, I've been going to comic book and science fiction conventions since I was a very, very little kid. And I've certainly seen the kind of preening competitive nerd, uh, nerd fights uh, go back a really, really long way. And, and, you know, some of it really comes down in terms of helping kids navigate it you know it's just understanding that like that you don't have to you don't have to accept abuse um you can and the more that you can kind of curate your own fan communities um and you know and find your 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 people the the better and and mm -hmm. i think my kids fortunately and i know other people's kids have had different experiences other people have had different experiences but my kids have been very good about just checking out of uh, you know, just kind of checking out of fandoms that they find toxic and mm -hmm. and and kind of steering themselves toward groups of people that they like and trust on the internet. That's a great point. I, I like to consider myself as a 45 year old woman exempt from the toxic community, but let's be realistic. I've had many heated debates about Samantha Jones not being in the Sex and the City reboot and it's just as toxic. <laughs> Boy, they're trying to make it, wow. they're trying to set the table for her if she wants to come back. Though, no spoilers. I'm not, I can't watch I, it till no, tomorrow. they've been doing it all season. No, 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 they've been doing it all season. They're trying to leave open the door. That's all I'm gonna say. <laughs> all right, we've got five minutes left in this conversation. I can't believe it. Um, so what I would like to do next is to this is a segment that Pop Culture Happy Hour ends every show with, which is just the most uplifting and amazing way to end an episode. So thank you all for this. And this is when they go around the table and answer the question, what is making you happy this week? And Linda, we will start with you. I recently read, and you'll hear more about this on the podcast, but I recently read the book Devil House by John Darnielle, who is the lead singer of the Mountain Goats and, um, you know, a general brilliant genius and, and great writer. And also, annoyingly, someone who is also a genuinely great novelist, in addition to being a genuinely great musician. And like, it's no one should have this much talent, but it's a book 
that has several overlapping narratives um, about crimes. And it, it tells the story of a true crime writer who's kind of trying to work his way through writing his next big book um, about a legendary set of murders um, in a small town. And it, it, I don't even want to say too much about it. It is formally experimental. It is fascinating. It is really well written. It is incredibly thoughtful about the ethics of true crime and and writing true stories in general so again john darniel um the uh, it's called devil house and uh loved it recommend it most highly all the librarians are clamoring right now thank you so good excellent recommendation true crime very very timely right now um we'll move over to stephen all right. Well, one of my my big New Year's resolution for 2022 was to read more uh, or read at all, <laughs> at least at least books. I am not typically a books on the bedside table guy. I'm a Pokemon Go with the bedside table guy. Um, I have been I just finished Party of One by Dave Holmes, which I love. I've just started reading How to Be Perfect by Michael Shore, who mm -hmm. is the, you know, obviously the good place and all those shows that we love. Um, and it is uh, it is delightful. I highly recommend it. A couple of TV recommendations. Somebody somewhere is fantastic we're talking about it i think on the show that publishes tomorrow but glenn and i i know both uh, love that show awesome. abbott abbott elementary if you're not watching abbott, abbott elementary elementary is, abbott elementary is phenomenal it is one of those shows where you watch the first few episodes and you think these are wonderful i can't even imagine how good this show is going to be in its second and third yeah. season i assume um, all the school librarians are on that one. i was just going to say yeah. trigger warning for the school <laughs> librarian <laughs> yeah it is it is definitely will give you all sorts of elementary school flashbacks, even if your only experience with elementary schools is having uh, gone to them. Yeah. Um, so so yeah, just tons of tons of great stuff. I could go on and on, but I know we're running short of time and Glenn still has things making him happy. All right. Uh, mine is uh, Severance. It's a nine part thriller, dark comedy coming to Apple Plus on February. Oh, 18th. yeah, I saw that. Linda, uh, I think you saw the first one. We're not quite on it. Uh, it is totally my jam. It's Adam Scott, uh, John Turturro, Patricia Arquette going full ham. Uh, Scott's character leads a very small team of office workers who've had their brain surgically altered so that they retain no memory of their work when they're at home, no memory of their home when they're at work. So they're, when they're at work, they have no idea who they really are. And that could go wrong in so many ways. It could be like about corporate culture, blah, blah, blah. It's, it's not a satire of corporate culture writ large. It spends all its energy building up the weird culture of this particular company, the lore around it, be a Glenn show. the way it rewards performances, the history of its founder, little Elon Musk, little Joseph Smith, little L. Ron Hubbard. Very funny, totally my jam. Gets weirder and weirder and weirder with each thing. You'll scream at the screen at the end of the ninth episode. My favorite thing I've seen in a while. Severance coming to Apple Plus. Nice. All amazing suggestions, recommendations, things that will have made you happy, hopefully will make us happy as well. Thank you so much, Linda, Stephen, and Glenn, for being with us today and chatting about pop culture. It has been a pleasure to have you. You all are what make is making me happy this week. And yeah. honestly, every week, uh, cue the Mike Katzif kicky music. Here we go. <laughs> I wish I had a little xylophone or something. Thank you Our so much. Our appreciation of librarians runs very deep. Yeah, we are, indeed, we, are deep. we have a deep and long relationship with librarians, librarians and, and library archivists. people. Yeah. We are <laughs> the greatest spreaders of joy and and love and we appreciate all of you very yeah. much and thank you so much for having us this yeah. has been this has been a joy i wish we could meet everybody in person because that's always the one of the most fun parts of doing this kind of thing but uh just know that we really appreciate you guys 
Thank you so much. Glenn gets the bonus point for differentiating librarians and archivists. So thank you. <laughs> and that was the keynote with NPR's Pop Culture Happy Hour, recorded at the OLA Superconference 2022. We hope that you enjoyed this episode of Library Land Loves. Take care, stay safe. We'll talk to you next week. <laughs>